Chapter 17 Regression to the Mean I had one of the most satisfying Eureka experiences of my career while teaching flight instructors in the Israeli Air Force about the psychology of effective training. I was telling them about an important principle of skill training. Rewards for improved performance work better than punishment of mistakes. This proposition is supported by much evidence from research on pigeons, rats, humans, and other animals. When I finished my enthusiastic speech, one of the most seasoned instructors in the group raised his hand and made a short speech of his own. He began by conceding that rewarding improved performance might be good for the birds, but he denied that it was optimal for flight cadets. This is what he said. On many occasions I have praised flight cadets for clean execution of some aerobatic maneuver. The next time they try the same maneuver, they usually do worse. On the other hand, I have often screamed into a cadet's earphone for bad execution, and in general he does better on his next try. So please don't tell us that reward works and punishment does not, because the opposite is the case. This was a joyous moment of insight, when I saw in a new light a principle of statistics that I had been teaching for years. The instructor was right, but he was also completely wrong. His observation was astute and correct. Occasions on which he praised a performance were likely to be followed by a disappointing performance, and punishments were typically followed by an improvement. But the inference he had drawn about the efficacy of reward and punishment was completely off the mark. What he had observed is known as regression to the mean, which in that case was due to random fluctuations in the quality of performance. Naturally, he praised only a cadet whose performance was far better than average, but the cadet was probably just lucky on that particular attempt, and therefore likely to deteriorate, regardless of whether or not he was praised. Similarly, the instructor would shout into a cadet's earphones only when the cadet's performance was unusually bad, and therefore likely to improve, regardless of what the instructor did. The instructor had attached a causal interpretation to the inevitable fluctuations of a random process. The challenge called for a response, but a lesson in the algebra of prediction would not be enthusiastically received. Instead, I used chalk to mark a target on the floor. I asked every officer in the room to turn his back to the target and throw two coins at it in immediate succession without looking. We measured the distances from the target and wrote the two results of each contestant on the blackboard. Then we rewrote the results in order, from the best to the worst performance on the first try. It was apparent that most, if not all, of those who had done best the first time deteriorated on their second try, and those who had done poorly on the first attempt generally improved. I pointed out to the instructors that what they saw on the board coincided with what we had heard about the performance of aerobatic maneuvers on successive attempts. Poor performance was typically followed by improvement, and good performance by deterioration, without any help from either praise or punishment.
The discovery I made on that day was that the flight instructors were trapped in an unfortunate contingency. Because they punished cadets when performance was poor, they were mostly rewarded by a subsequent improvement, even if punishment was actually ineffective. Furthermore, the instructors were not alone in that predicament. I had stumbled onto a significant fact of the human condition. The feedback to which life exposes us is perverse. Because we tend to be nice to other people when they please us, and nasty when they do not, we are statistically punished for being nice and rewarded for being nasty. Talent and Luck A few years ago, John Brockman, who edits the online magazine Edge, asked a number of scientists to report their favorite equation. These were my offerings. Success equals talent plus luck. Great success equals a little more talent and a lot of luck. The unsurprising idea that luck often contributes to success has surprising consequences when we apply it to the first two days of a high-level golf tournament. To keep things simple, assume that on both days the average score of the competitors was at par 72. We focus on a player who did very well on the first day, closing with a score of 66. What can we learn from that excellent score? An immediate inference is that the golfer is more talented than the average participant in the tournament. The formula for success suggests that another inference is equally justified. The golfer who did so well on day one probably enjoyed better-than-average luck on that day. If you accept that talent and luck both contribute to success, the conclusion that the successful golfer was lucky is as warranted as the conclusion that he is talented. By the same token, if you focus on a player who scored five over par on that day, you have reason to infer both that he is rather weak and had a bad day. Of course, you know that neither of these inferences is certain. It is entirely possible that the player who scored 77 is actually very talented, but had an exceptionally dreadful day. Uncertain though they are, the following inferences from the score on day one are plausible and will be correct more often than they are wrong. Above average score on day one equals above average talent plus lucky on day one. And below average score on day one equals below average talent plus unlucky on day one. Now suppose you know a golfer's score on day one and are asked to predict his score on day two. You expect the golfer to retain the same level of talent on the second day, so your best guesses will be above average for the first player and below average for the second player. Luck, of course, is a different matter. Since you have no way of predicting the golfer's luck on the second or any day, your best guess must be that it will be average, neither good nor bad. This means that in the absence of any other information, your best guess about the player's score on day two should not be a repeat of their performance on day one. 
This is the most you can say. The golfer who did well on day one is likely to be successful on day two as well, but less than on the first, because the unusual luck he probably enjoyed on day one is unlikely to hold. The golfer who did poorly on day one will probably be below average on day two, but will improve, because his probable streak of bad luck is not likely to continue. We also expect the difference between the two golfers to shrink on the second day, although our best guess is that the first player will still do better than the second. My students were always surprised to hear that the best predicted performance on day two is more moderate, closer to the average than the evidence on which it is based, the score on day one. This is why the pattern is called regression to the mean. The more extreme the original score, the more regression we expect, because an extremely good score suggests a very lucky day. The regressive prediction is reasonable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. A few of the golfers who scored 66 on day one will do even better on the second day if their luck improves. Most will do worse, because their luck will no longer be above average. Now let us go against the time arrow. Arrange the players by their performance on day two, and look at their performance on day one. You will find precisely the same pattern of regression to the mean. The golfers who did best on day two were probably lucky on that day, and the best guess is that they had been less lucky and had done less well on day one. The fact that you observe regression when you predict an early event from a later event should help convince you that regression does not have a causal explanation. Regression effects are ubiquitous, and so are misguided causal stories to explain them. A well-known example is the Sports Illustrated Jinx. The claim that an athlete whose picture appears on the cover of the magazine is doomed to perform poorly the following season. Overconfidence and the pressure of meeting high expectations are often offered as explanations. But there is a simpler account of the jinx. An athlete who gets to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated must have performed exceptionally well in the preceding season, probably with the assistance of a nudge from luck. And luck is fickle. I happened to watch the men's ski jump event in the Winter Olympics while Amos and I were working on an article about intuitive prediction. Each athlete has two jumps in the event, and the results are combined for the final score. I was startled to hear the sportscasters' comments while athletes were preparing for their second jump. Norway had a great first jump. He will be tense, hoping to protect his lead, and will probably do worse. Or, Sweden had a bad first jump, and now he knows he has nothing to lose, and will be relaxed, which should help him do better. The commentator had obviously detected regression to the mean, and had invented a causal story for which there was no evidence. The story itself could even be true. Perhaps if we measured the athlete's pulse before each jump, we might find that they are indeed more relaxed after a bad first jump, and perhaps not. The point to remember 
is that the change from the first to the second jump does not need a causal explanation. It is a mathematically inevitable consequence of the fact that luck played a role in the outcome of the first jump. Not a very satisfactory story. We would all prefer a causal account, but that is all there is. Understanding Regression Whether undetected or wrongly explained, the phenomenon of regression is strange to the human mind. So strange, indeed, that it was first identified and understood 200 years after the theory of gravitation and differential calculus. Furthermore, it took one of the best minds of 19th century Britain to make sense of it, and that with great difficulty. Regression to the mean was discovered and named late in the 19th century by Sir Francis Galton, a half-cousin of Charles Darwin and a renowned polymath. You can sense the thrill of discovery in an article he published in 1886 under the title Regression Towards Mediocrity in Hereditary Stature, which reports measurements of size in successive generations of seeds and in comparisons of the height of children to the height of their parents. He writes about his studies of seeds. They yielded results that seemed very noteworthy, and I used them as the basis of a lecture before the Royal Institution on February 9, 1877. It appeared from these experiments that the offspring did not tend to resemble their parent seeds in size, but to be always more mediocre than they, to be smaller than the parents if the parents were large, to be larger than the parents if the parents were very small. The experiments showed further that the mean filial regression towards mediocrity was directly proportional to the parental deviation from it. Galton obviously expected his learned audience at the Royal Institution the oldest independent research society in the world, to be as surprised by his noteworthy observation as he had been. What is truly noteworthy is that he was surprised by a statistical regularity that is as common as the air we breathe. Regression effects can be found wherever we look, but we do not recognize them for what they are. They hide in plain sight. It took Galton several years to work his way from his discovery of filial regression in size to the broader notion that regression inevitably occurs when the correlation between two measures is less than perfect, and he needed the help of the most brilliant statisticians of his time to reach that conclusion. One of the hurdles Galton had to overcome was the problem of measuring regression between variables that are measured on different scales, such as weight and piano playing. This is done by using the population as a standard of reference. Imagine that weight and piano playing have been measured for 100 children in all grades of an elementary school, and that they have been ranked from high to low on each measure. If Jane ranks third in piano playing and 27th in weight, it is appropriate to say that she is a better pianist than she is tall. Let us make some assumptions that will simplify things. At any age, 
Piano playing success depends only on weekly hours of practice. Weight depends only on consumption of ice cream. Ice cream consumption and weekly hours of practice are unrelated. Now, using ranks or the standard scores that statisticians prefer, we can write some equations. Weight equals age plus ice cream consumption. Piano playing equals age plus weekly hours of practice. You can see that there will be regression to the mean when we predict piano playing from weight, or vice versa. If all you know about Tom is that he ranks twelfth in weight, well above average, you can infer statistically that he is probably older than average, and also that he probably consumes more ice cream than other children. If all you know about Barbara is that she is eighty-fifth in piano. Far below the average of the group, you can infer that she is likely to be young and that she is likely to practice less than most other children. The correlation coefficient between two measures, which varies between zero and one, is a measure of the relative weight of the factors they share. For example, we all share half our genes with each of our parents. And for traits in which environmental factors have relatively little influence, such as height, the correlation between parent and child is not far from 0.50. To appreciate the meaning of the correlation measure, the following are some examples of coefficients. The correlation between the size of objects measured with precision in English or in metric units is one. Any factor that influences one measure also influences the other. One hundred percent of determinants are shared. The correlation between self-reported height and weight among adult American males is 0.41. If you included women and children, the correlation would be much higher because individuals' gender and age influence both their height and their weight. Boosting the relative weight of shared factors. The correlation between SAT scores and college GPA is approximately 0.60. However, the correlation between aptitude tests and success in graduate school is much lower, largely because measured aptitude varies little in this selected group. If everyone has similar aptitude. Differences in this measure are unlikely to play a large role in measures of success. The correlation between income and education level in the United States is approximately 0.40. The correlation between family income and the last four digits of their phone number is zero. It took Francis Galton several years to figure out that correlation and regression are not. Two concepts; they are different perspectives on the same concept. The general rule is straightforward, but has surprising consequences. Whenever the correlation between two scores is imperfect, there will be a regression to the mean. To illustrate Galton's insight, take a proposition that most people find quite interesting: highly intelligent women. Tend to marry men who are less intelligent than they are.
you can get a good conversation started at a party by asking for an explanation, and your friends will readily oblige. Even people who have had some exposure to statistics will spontaneously interpret the statement in causal terms. Some may think of highly intelligent women wanting to avoid the competition of equally intelligent men, or being forced to compromise in their choice of spouse because intelligent men do not want to compete with intelligent women. More far-fetched explanations will come up at a good party. Now consider this statement. The correlation between the intelligence scores of spouses is less than perfect. This statement is obviously true and not interesting at all. Who would expect the correlation to be perfect? There is nothing to explain. But the statement you found interesting and the statement you found trivial are algebraically equivalent. If the correlation between the intelligence of spouses is less than perfect, and if men and women on average do not differ in intelligence, then it is a mathematical inevitability that highly intelligent women will be married to husbands who are, on average, less intelligent than they are, and vice versa, of course. The observed regression to the mean cannot be more interesting or more explainable than the imperfect correlation. You probably sympathize with Galton's struggle with the concept of regression. Indeed, the statistician David Freeman used to say that if the topic of regression comes up in a criminal or civil trial, the side that must explain regression to the jury will lose the case. Why is it so hard? The main reason for the difficulty is a recurrent theme of this book. Our mind is strongly biased toward causal explanations and does not deal well with mere statistics. When our attention is called to an event, associative memory will look for its cause. More precisely, activation will automatically spread to any cause that is already stored in memory. Causal explanations will be evoked when regression is detected, but they will be wrong, because the truth is that regression to the mean has an explanation but does not have a cause. The event that attracts our attention in the golfing tournament is the frequent deterioration of the performance of the golfers who were successful on day one. The best explanation of it is that those golfers were unusually lucky that day, but this explanation lacks the causal force that our minds prefer. Indeed, we pay people quite well to provide interesting explanations of regression effects. A business commentator who correctly announces that the business did better this year because it had done poorly last year is likely to have a short tenure on the air. Our difficulties with the concept of regression originate with both System 1 and System 2. Without special instruction, and in quite a few cases even after some statistical instruction, the relationship between correlation and regression remains obscure. System 2 finds it difficult to understand and learn. This is due in part to the insistent demand for causal interpretations, which is a feature of System 1. Depressed children treated with an energy drink improve significantly over a three-month period. 
I made up this newspaper headline, but the fact it reports is true. If you treated a group of depressed children for some time with an energy drink, they would show a clinically significant improvement. It is also the case that depressed children who spend some time standing on their head or hug a cat for 20 minutes a day will also show improvement. Most readers of such headlines will automatically infer that the energy drink or the cat hugging caused an improvement, but this conclusion is completely unjustified. Depressed children are an extreme group. They are more depressed than most other children, and extreme groups regress to the mean over time. The correlation between depression scores on successive occasions of testing is less than perfect. So there will be regression to the mean. Depressed children will get somewhat better over time, even if they hug no cats and drink no Red Bull. In order to conclude that an energy drink or any other treatment is effective, you must compare a group of patients who receive this treatment to a control group that receives no treatment, or better, receives a placebo. The control group is expected to improve by regression alone, and the aim of the experiment is to determine whether the treated patients improve more than regression can explain. Incorrect causal interpretations of regression effects are not restricted to readers of the popular press. The statistician Howard Weiner has drawn up a long list of eminent researchers who have made the same mistake confusing mere correlation with causation. Regression effects are a common source of trouble in research, and experienced scientists develop a healthy fear of the trap of unwarranted causal interference. One of my favorite examples of the errors of intuitive prediction is adapted from Max Bazerman's excellent text, Judgment in Managerial Decision-Making. You are the sales forecaster for a department store chain. All stores are similar in size and merchandise selection, but their sales differ because of location, competition, and random factors. You are given the results for 2011 and asked to forecast sales for 2012. You have been instructed to accept the overall forecast of economists that sales will increase overall by 10%. How would you complete the following table? In 2011, Store 1, $11 million. Store 2, $23 million. Store 3, $18 million. Store 4, $29 million. Total, $61 million. The total for all stores in 2012 is $67,100,000. What is each store's forecast for 2012? Having read this chapter, you know that the obvious solution of adding 10% to the sales of each store is wrong. You want your forecasts to be regressive, which requires adding more than 10% to the low-performing branches and adding less or even subtracting to others. But if you ask other people, you are likely to encounter puzzlement. Why do you bother them with an obvious question? As Galton painfully discovered, the concept of regression is far from obvious. 
Speaking of regression to mediocrity. She says experience has taught her that criticism is more effective than praise. What she doesn't understand is that it's all due to regression to the mean. Perhaps his second interview was less impressive than the first because he was afraid of disappointing us. But more likely, it was his first that was unusually good. Our screening procedure is good, but not perfect. So we should anticipate regression. We shouldn't be surprised that the very best candidates often fail to meet our expectations. Chapter 18 Taming Intuitive Predictions Life presents us with many occasions to forecast. Economists forecast inflation and unemployment. Financial analysts forecast earnings. Military experts predict casualties. Venture capitalists assess profitability. Publishers and producers predict audiences. Contractors estimate the time required to complete projects. Chefs anticipate the demand for the dishes on their menu. Engineers estimate the amount of concrete needed for a building. Fireground commanders assess the number of trucks that will be needed to put out a fire. In our private lives, we forecast our spouse's reaction to a proposed move or our own future adjustment to a new job. Some predictive judgments, such as those made by engineers, rely largely on lookup tables, precise calculations, and explicit analyses of outcomes observed on similar occasions. Others involve intuition and system one in two main varieties. Some intuitions draw rapidly on skill and expertise acquired by repeated experience. The rapid and automatic judgments and choices of chess masters, fireground commanders, and physicians that Gary Klein has described in Sources of Power and elsewhere illustrate these skilled intuitions in which a solution to the current problem comes to mind quickly because familiar cues are recognized. Other intuitions, which are sometimes subjectively indistinguishable from the first, arise from the operation of heuristics that often substitute an easy question for the harder one that was asked. Intuitive judgments can be made with high confidence even when they are based on non-regressive assessments of weak evidence. Of course, many judgments, especially in the professional domain, are influenced by a combination of analysis and intuition. Non-regressive intuitions Let us return to a person we have already met. Julie is currently a senior in a state university. She read fluently when she was four years old. What is her grade point average, GPA? People who are familiar with the American educational scene quickly come up with a number, which is often in the vicinity of 3.7 or 3.8. How does this occur? Several operations of System 1 are involved. A causal link between the evidence, Julie's reading, and the target of the prediction, her GPA, is sought. The link can be indirect. In this instance, 
early reading and a high GDP are both indications of academic talent. Some connection is necessary. You, your system too, would probably reject as irrelevant a report of Julie winning a fly-fishing competition or excelling at weightlifting in high school. The process is effectively dichotomous. We are capable of rejecting information as irrelevant or false, but adjusting for smaller weaknesses in the evidence is not something that System 1 can do. As a result, intuitive predictions are almost completely insensitive to the actual predictive quality of the evidence. When a link is found, as in the case of Julie's early reading, what you see is all there is applies. Your associative memory quickly and automatically constructs the best possible story from the information available. Next, the evidence is evaluated in relation to a relevant norm. How precocious is a child who reads fluently at age four? What relative rank or percentile score corresponds to this achievement? The group to which the child is compared, we call it a reference group, is not fully specified, but this is also the rule in normal speech. If someone graduating from college is described as quite clever, you rarely need to ask, when you say quite clever, which reference group do you have in mind? The next step involves substitution and intensity matching. The evaluation of the flimsy evidence of cognitive ability in childhood is substituted as an answer to the question about her college GPA. Julie will be assigned the same percentile score for her GPA and for her achievements as an early reader. The question specified that the answer must be on the GPA scale, which requires another intensity-matching operation, from a general impression of Julie's academic achievements to the GPA that matches the evidence for her talent. The final step is a translation from an impression of Julie's relative academic standing to the GPA that corresponds to it. Intensity matching yields predictions that are as extreme as the evidence on which they are based, leading people to give the same answer to two quite different questions. What is Julie's percentile score on reading precocity? What is Julie's percentile score on GPA? By now, you should easily recognize that all these operations are features of System 1. I listed them here as an orderly sequence of steps, but of course, the spread of activation in associative memory does not work this way. You should imagine a process of spreading activation that is initially prompted by the evidence and the question, feeds back upon itself, and eventually settles on the most coherent solution possible. Amos and I once asked participants in an experiment to judge descriptions of eight college freshmen, allegedly written by a counselor on the basis of interviews of the entering class. Each description consisted of five adjectives, as in the following example. Intelligent, self-confident, well-read, hard-working, inquisitive. We asked some participants to answer two questions. How much does this description impress you with respect to academic ability? 
What percentage of descriptions of freshmen do you believe would impress you more? The questions require you to evaluate the evidence by comparing the description to your norm for descriptions of students by counselors. The very existence of such a norm is remarkable. Although you surely do not know how you acquired it, you have a fairly clear sense of how much enthusiasm the description conveys. The counselor believes that this student is good, but not spectacularly good. There is room for stronger adjectives than intelligent, brilliant, creative, well-read, scholarly, erudite, impressively knowledgeable, and hard-working, passionate, perfectionist. The verdict? Very likely to be in the top 15%, but unlikely to be in the top 3%. There is impressive consensus in such judgments, at least within a culture. The other participants in our experiment were asked different questions. What is your estimate of the grade point average that the student will obtain? What is the percentage of freshmen who obtain a higher GPA? You need another look to detect the subtle difference between the two sets of questions. The difference should be obvious, but it is not. Unlike the first questions, which required you only to evaluate the evidence, the second set involves a great deal of uncertainty. The question refers to actual performance at the end of the freshman year. What happened during the year since the interview was performed? How accurately can you predict the student's actual achievements in the first year at college from five adjectives? Would the counselor herself be perfectly accurate if she predicted GPA from an interview? The objective of this study was to compare the percentile judgments that the participants made when evaluating the evidence in one case and when predicting the ultimate outcome in another. The results are easy to summarize. The judgments were identical. Although the two sets of questions differ, one is about the description, the other about the student's future academic performance, the participants treated them as if they were the same. As was the case with Julie, the prediction of the future is not distinguished from an evaluation of current evidence. Prediction matches evaluation. This is perhaps the best evidence we have for the role of substitution. People are asked for a prediction, but they substitute an evaluation of the evidence without noticing that the question they answer is not the one they were asked. This process is guaranteed to generate predictions that are systematically biased. They completely ignore regression to the mean. During my military service in the Israeli Defense Forces, I spent some time attached to a unit that selected candidates for officer training on the basis of a series of interviews and field tests. The designated criterion for successful prediction was a cadet's final grade in officer school. The validity of the ratings was known to be rather poor. I will tell more about it in a later chapter. The unit still existed years later when I was a professor and collaborating with Amos in the study of intuitive judgment. I had good contacts with the people at the unit and asked them for a favor. In addition to the usual grading system they used to evaluate the candidates, 
I asked for their best guess of the grade that each of the future cadets would obtain in officer school. They collected a few hundred such forecasts. The officers who had produced the predictions were all familiar with the letter grading system that the school applied to its cadets and the approximate proportions of A's, B's, etc. among them. The results were striking. The relative frequency of A's and B's in the predictions was almost identical to the frequencies in the final grades of the school. These findings provide a compelling example of both substitution and intensity matching. The officers who provided the predictions completely failed to discriminate between two tasks. Their usual mission, which was to evaluate the performance of candidates during their stay at the unit, the task I had asked them to perform, which was an actual prediction of a future grade. They had simply translated their own grades onto the scale used in officer school, applying intensity matching. Once again, the failure to address the considerable uncertainty of their predictions had led them to predictions that were completely non-regressive. A Correction for Intuitive Predictions Back to Julie, our precocious reader. The correct way to predict her GPA was introduced in the preceding chapter. As I did there for golf on successive days and for weight and piano playing, I write a schematic formula for the factors that determine reading age and college grades. Reading age equals shared factors plus factors specific to reading age equals 100%. GPA equals shared factors plus factors specific to GPA equals 100%. The shared factors involve genetically determined aptitude, the degree to which the family supports academic interests, and anything else that would cause the same people to be precocious readers as children and academically successful as young adults. Of course, there are many factors that would affect one of these outcomes and not the other. Julie could have been pushed to read early by overly ambitious parents. She may have had an unhappy love affair that depressed her college grades. She could have had a skiing accident during adolescence that left her slightly impaired, and so on. Recall that the correlation between two measures, in the present case, reading age and GPA, is equal to the proportion of shared factors among their determinants. What is your best guess about that proportion? My most optimistic guess is about 30%. Assuming this estimate, we have all we need to produce an unbiased prediction. Here are the directions for how to get there in four simple steps. 1. Start with an estimate of average GPA. 2. Determine the GPA that matches your impression of the evidence. 3. Estimate the correlation between your evidence and GPA. 4. If the correlation is .30, move 30% of the distance from the average to the matching GPA. Step 1 gets you to the baseline, the GPA you would have predicted if you were told nothing about Julie beyond the fact that she is a graduating senior. 
In the absence of information, you would have predicted the average. This is similar to assigning the base rate probability of business administration graduates when you are told nothing about Tom W. Step two is your intuitive prediction, which matches your evaluation of the evidence. Step three moves you from the baseline toward your intuition, but the distance you are allowed to move depends on your estimate of the correlation. You end up at step four with a prediction that is influenced by your intuition, but is far more moderate. This approach to prediction is general. You can apply it whenever you need to predict a quantitative variable, such as GPA, profit from an investment, or the growth of a company. The approach builds on your intuition, but it moderates it, regresses it toward the mean. When you have good reasons to trust the accuracy of your intuitive prediction, a strong correlation between the evidence and the prediction, the adjustment will be small. Intuitive predictions need to be corrected because they are not regressive and therefore are biased. Suppose that I predict for each golfer in a tournament that his score on day two will be the same as his score on day one. This prediction does not allow for regression to the mean. The golfers who fared well on day one will, on average, do less well on day two, and those who did poorly will mostly improve. When they are eventually compared to actual outcomes, non-regressive predictions will be found to be biased. They are, on average, overly optimistic for those who did best on the first day and overly pessimistic for those who had a bad start. The predictions are as extreme as the evidence. Similarly, if you use childhood achievements to predict grades in college without regressing your predictions toward the mean, you will more often than not be disappointed by the academic outcomes of early readers and happily surprised by the grades of those who learn to read relatively late. The corrected intuitive predictions eliminate these biases so that predictions, both high and low, are about equally likely to overestimate and to underestimate the true value. You still make errors when your predictions are unbiased, but the errors are smaller and do not favor either high or low outcomes. A Defense of Extreme Predictions? I introduced Tom W. earlier to illustrate predictions of discrete outcomes such as field of specialization or success in an examination, which are expressed by assigning a probability to a specified event, or in that case by ranking outcomes from the most to the least probable. I also described a procedure that counters the common biases of discrete prediction neglect of base rates and insensitivity to the quality of information. The biases we find in predictions that are expressed on a scale, such as GPA or the revenue of a firm, are similar to the biases observed in judging the probabilities of outcomes. The corrective procedures are also similar. Both contain a baseline prediction which you would make if you knew nothing about the case at hand. In the categorical case, it was the base rate. In the numerical case, it is the average outcome in the relevant category. Both contain an intuitive prediction, 
which expresses the number that comes to your mind, whether it is a probability or a GPA. In both cases, you aim for a prediction that is intermediate between the baseline and your intuitive response. In the default case of no useful evidence, you stay with the baseline. At the other extreme, you also stay with your initial prediction. This will happen, of course, only if you remain completely confident in your initial prediction after a critical review of the evidence that supports it. In most cases, you will find some reason to doubt that the correlation between your intuitive judgment and the truth is perfect, and you will end up somewhere between the two poles. This procedure is an approximation of the likely results of an appropriate statistical analysis. If successful, it will move you toward unbiased predictions, reasonable assessments of probability, and moderate predictions of numerical outcomes. The two procedures are intended to address the same bias. Intuitive predictions tend to be overconfident and overly extreme. Correcting your intuitive predictions is a task for System 2. Significant effort is required to find the relevant reference category, estimate the baseline prediction, and evaluate the quality of the evidence. The effort is justified only when the stakes are high and when you are particularly keen not to make mistakes. Furthermore, you should know that correcting your intuitions may complicate your life. A characteristic of unbiased predictions is that they permit the prediction of rare or extreme events only when the information is very good. If you expect your predictions to be of modest validity, you will never guess an outcome that is either rare or far from the mean. If your predictions are unbiased, you will never have the satisfying experience of correctly calling an extreme case. You will never be able to say, I thought so, when your best student in law school becomes a Supreme Court justice, or when a startup that you thought very promising eventually becomes a major commercial success. Given the limitations of the evidence, you will never predict that an outstanding high school student will be a straight-A student at Princeton. For the same reason, a venture capitalist will never be told that the probability of success for a startup in its early stages is very high. The objections to the principle of moderating intuitive predictions must be taken seriously, because absence of bias is not always what matters most. A preference for unbiased predictions is justified if all errors of prediction are treated alike, regardless of their direction. But there are situations in which one type of error is much worse than another. When a venture capitalist looks for the next big thing, the risk of missing the next Google or Facebook is far more important than the risk of making a modest investment in a startup that ultimately fails. The goal of venture capitalists is to call the extreme cases correctly, even at the cost of overestimating the prospects of many other ventures. For a conservative banker making large loans, the risk of a single borrower going bankrupt may outweigh the risk of turning down several would-be clients 
who would fulfill their obligations. In such cases, the use of extreme language, very good prospect, serious risk of default, may have some justification for the comfort it provides, even if the information on which these judgments are based is only of modest validity. For a rational person, predictions that are unbiased and moderate should not present a problem. After all, the rational venture capitalist knows that even the most promising startups have only a moderate chance of success. She views her job as picking the most promising bets from the bets that are available and does not feel the need to delude herself about the prospects of a startup in which she plans to invest. Similarly, rational individuals predicting the revenue of a firm will not be bound to a single number. They should consider the range of uncertainty around the most likely outcome. A rational person will invest a large sum in an enterprise that is most likely to fail if the rewards of success are large enough, without deluding herself about the chances of success. However, we are not all rational, and some of us may need the security of distorted estimates to avoid paralysis. If you choose to delude yourself by accepting extreme predictions, however, you will do well to remain aware of your self-indulgence. Perhaps the most valuable contribution of the corrective procedures I propose is that they will require you to think about how much you know. I will use an example that is familiar in the academic world, but the analogies to other spheres of life are immediate. A department is about to hire a young professor and wants to choose the one whose prospects for scientific productivity are the best. The search committee has narrowed down the choice to two candidates. Kim recently completed her graduate work. Her recommendations are spectacular, and she gave a brilliant talk and impressed everyone in her interviews. She has no substantial track record of scientific productivity. Jane has held a postdoctoral position for the last three years. She has been very productive and her research record is excellent, but her talk and interviews were less sparkling than Kim's. The intuitive choice favors Kim, because she left a stronger impression and what you see is all there is. But it is also the case that there is much less information about Kim than about Jane. We are back to the law of small numbers. In effect, you have a smaller sample of information from Kim than from Jane, and extreme outcomes are much more likely to be observed in small samples. There is much more luck in the outcomes of small samples, and you should therefore regress your prediction more deeply toward the mean in your prediction of Kim's future performance. When you allow for the fact that Kim is likely to regress more than Jane, you might end up selecting Jane, although you were less impressed by her. In the context of academic choices, I would vote for Jane, but it would be a struggle to overcome my intuitive impression that Kim is more promising. Following our intuitions is more natural, and somehow more pleasant, than acting against them. You can readily imagine similar problems in different contexts, such as a venture capitalist choosing between investments in two startups that operate in different markets. 
One startup has a product for which demand can be estimated with fair precision. The other candidate is more exciting and intuitively promising, but its prospects are less certain. Whether the best guess about the prospects of the second startup is still superior when the uncertainty is factored in is a question that deserves careful consideration. A two systems view of regression. Extreme predictions and a willingness to predict rare events from weak evidence are both manifestations of System One. It is natural for the associative machinery to match the extremeness of predictions to the perceived extremeness of evidence on which it is based. This is how substitution works. And it is natural for System One to generate overconfident judgments. Because confidence, as we have seen, is determined by the coherence of the best story you can tell from the evidence at hand. Be warned: your intuitions will deliver predictions that are too extreme, and you will be inclined to put far too much faith in them. Regression is also a problem for System Two. The very idea of regression to the mean is alien and difficult to communicate and comprehend. Galton had a hard time before he understood it. Many statistics teachers dread the class in which the topic comes up, and their students often end up with only a vague understanding of this crucial concept. This is a case where System Two requires special training. Matching predictions to the evidence is not only something we do intuitively; it also seems a reasonable thing to do. We will not learn to understand regression from experience. Even when a regression is identified, as we saw in the story of the flight instructors, it will be given a causal interpretation that is almost always wrong. Speaking of intuitive predictions, that startup achieved an outstanding proof of concept, but we shouldn't expect them to do as well in the future. They are still a long way from the market, and there is a lot of room for regression. Our intuitive prediction is very favorable, but it is probably too high. Let's take into account the strength of our evidence and regress the prediction toward the mean. The investment may be a good idea, even if the best guess is that it will fail. Let's not say we really believe it is the next Google. I read one review of that brand, and it was excellent. Still, that could have been a fluke. Let's consider only the brands that have a large number of reviews and pick the one that looks best. Part three: Overconfidence. Chapter nineteen: The illusion of understanding. The trader, philosopher, statistician Nassim Taleb could also be considered a psychologist. In *The Black Swan*, Taleb introduced the notion of a narrative fallacy to describe how flawed stories of the past shape our views of the world and our expectations for the future. Narrative fallacies arise inevitably from our continuous attempt to make sense of the world. The explanatory stories that people find compelling are simple, are concrete rather than abstract. 
assign a larger role to talent, stupidity, and intentions than to luck, and focus on a few striking events that happened, rather than on the countless events that failed to happen. Any recent salient event is a candidate to become the kernel of a causal narrative. Taleb suggests that we humans constantly fool ourselves by constructing flimsy accounts of the past and believing they are true. Good stories provide a simple and coherent account of people's actions and intentions. You are always ready to interpret behavior as a manifestation of general propensities and personality traits, clauses that you can readily match to effects. The halo effect discussed earlier contributes to coherence because it inclines us to match our view of all the qualities of a person to our judgment of one attribute that is particularly significant. If we think a baseball pitcher is handsome and athletic, for example, we're likely to rate him better at throwing the ball, too. Halos can also be negative. If we think a player is ugly, we will probably underrate his athletic ability. The halo effect helps keep explanatory narratives simple and coherent by exaggerating the consistency of evaluations. Good people do only good things, and bad people are all bad. The statement, Hitler loved dogs and little children, is shocking no matter how many times you hear it, because any trace of kindness in someone so evil violates the expectations set up by the halo effect. Inconsistencies reduce the ease of our thoughts and the clarity of our feelings. A compelling narrative fosters an illusion of inevitability. Consider the story of how Google turned into a giant of the technology industry. Two creative graduate students in the computer science department at Stanford University come up with a superior way of searching information on the Internet. They seek and obtain funding to start a company and make a series of decisions that work out well. Within a few years, the company they started is one of the most valuable stocks in America, and the two former graduate students are among the richest people on the planet. On one memorable occasion, they were lucky, which makes the story even more compelling. A year after founding Google, they were willing to sell their company for less than $1 million, but the buyer said the price was too high. Mentioning the single lucky incident actually makes it easier to underestimate the multitude of ways in which luck affected the outcome. A detailed history would specify the decisions of Google's founders, but for our purposes, it suffices to say that almost every choice they made had a good outcome. A more complete narrative would describe the actions of the firms that Google defeated. The hapless competitors would appear to be blind, slow, and altogether inadequate in dealing with the threat that eventually overwhelmed them. I intentionally told this tale blandly, but you get the idea. There's a very good story here. Fleshed out in more detail, the story could give you the sense that you understand what made Google succeed. It would also make you feel that you've learned a valuable general lesson about what makes businesses succeed. Unfortunately, there is good reason to believe that your sense of understanding and learning from the Google story is largely illusory. 
The ultimate test of an explanation is whether it would have made the event predictable in advance. No story of Google's unlikely success will meet that test, because no story can include the myriad of events that would have caused a different outcome. The human mind does not deal well with non-events. The fact that many of the important events that did occur involve choices further tempts you to exaggerate the role of skill and underestimate the part that luck played in the outcome. Because every critical decision turned out well, the record suggests almost flawless prescience. But bad luck could have disrupted any one of the successful steps. The halo effect adds the final touches, lending an aura of invincibility to the heroes of the story. Like watching a skilled rafter avoid one potential calamity after another as he goes down the rapids, the unfolding of the Google story is thrilling because of the constant risk of disaster. However, there is an instructive difference between the two cases. The skilled rafter has gone down rapids hundreds of times. He has learned to read the roiling water in front of him and to anticipate obstacles. He has learned to make the tiny adjustments of posture that keep him upright. There are fewer opportunities for young men to learn how to create a giant company, and fewer chances to avoid hidden rocks, such as a brilliant innovation by a competing firm. Of course, there was a great deal of skill in the Google story, but luck played a more important role in the actual event than it does in the telling of it. And the more luck was involved, the less there is to be learned. At work here is that powerful, what-you-see-is-all-there-is rule. You cannot help dealing with the limited information you have as if it were all there is to know. You build the best possible story from the information available to you, and if it is a good story, you believe it. Paradoxically, it is easier to construct a coherent story when you know little, when there are fewer pieces to fit into the puzzle. Our comforting conviction that the world makes sense rests on a secure foundation, our almost unlimited ability to ignore our ignorance. I have heard of too many people who knew well before it happened that the 2008 financial crisis was inevitable. This sentence contains a highly objectionable word, which should be removed from our vocabulary in discussions of major events. The word is, of course, new. Some people thought well in advance that there would be a crisis, but they did not know it. They now say they knew it because the crisis did, in fact, happen. This is a misuse of an important concept. In everyday language, we apply the word know only when what was known is true and can be shown to be true. We can know something only if it is both true and knowable. But the people who thought there would be a crisis, and there are fewer of them than now remember thinking it, could not conclusively show it at the time. Many intelligent and well-informed people were keenly interested in the future of the economy and did not believe a catastrophe was imminent. I infer from this fact that the crisis was not knowable. What is perverse about the use of no in this context 
is not that some individuals get credit for prescience that they do not deserve. It is that the language implies that the world is more knowable than it is. It helps perpetuate a pernicious illusion. The core of the illusion is that we believe we understand the past, which implies that the future also should be knowable, but in fact we understand the past less than we believe we do. No is not the only word that fosters this illusion. In common usage, the words intuition and premonition also are reserved for past thoughts that turned out to be true. The statement, I had a premonition that the marriage would not last, but I was wrong, sounds odd, as does any sentence about an intuition that turned out to be false. To think clearly about the future, we need to clean up the language that we use in labeling the beliefs we had in the past. The Social Costs of Hindsight The mind that makes up narratives about the past is a sense-making organ. When an unpredicted event occurs, we immediately adjust our view of the world to accommodate the surprise. Imagine yourself before a football game between two teams that have the same record of wins and losses. Now the game is over and one team trashed the other. In your revised model of the world, the winning team is much stronger than the loser, and your view of the past as well as of the future has been altered by that new perception. Learning from surprises is a reasonable thing to do, but it can have some dangerous consequences. A general limitation of the human mind is its imperfect ability to reconstruct past states of knowledge or beliefs that have changed. Once you adopt a new view of the world, or of any part of it, you immediately lose much of your ability to recall what you used to believe before your mind changed. Many psychologists have studied what happens when people change their minds. Choose a topic on which minds are not completely made up, say, the death penalty. The experimenter carefully measures people's attitudes. Next, the participants see or hear a persuasive pro or con message. Then the experimenter measures people's attitudes again. They usually are closer to the persuasive message they were exposed to. Finally, the participants report the opinion they held beforehand. This task turns out to be surprisingly difficult. Asked to reconstruct their former beliefs, people retrieve their current ones instead, an instance of substitution, and many cannot believe that they ever felt differently. Your inability to reconstruct past beliefs will inevitably cause you to underestimate the extent to which you were surprised by past events. Baruch Fischoff first demonstrated this I-knew-it-all-along effect, or hindsight bias, when he was a student in Jerusalem. Together with Ruth Beth, another of our students, Fischoff conducted a survey before President Richard Nixon visited China and Russia in 1972. The respondents assigned probabilities to 15 possible outcomes of Nixon's diplomatic initiatives. Would Mao Zedong agree to meet with Nixon? Might the United States grant diplomatic recognition to China? After decades of enmity, 
Could the United States and the Soviet Union agree on anything significant? After Nixon's return from his travels, Fishoff and Beth asked the same people to recall the probability that they had originally assigned to each of the fifteen possible outcomes. The results were clear. If an event had actually occurred, people exaggerated the probability that they had assigned to it earlier. If the possible event had not come to pass, the participants erroneously recalled that they had always considered it unlikely. Further experiments show that people were driven to overstate the accuracy not only of their original predictions, but also of those made by others. Similar results have been found for other events that gripped public attention, such as the O.J. Simpson murder trial and the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. The tendency to revise the history of one's beliefs in light of what actually happened produces a robust cognitive illusion. Hindsight bias has pernicious effects on the evaluations of decision-makers. It leads observers to assess the quality of a decision not by whether the process was sound, but by whether its outcome was good or bad. Consider a low-risk surgical intervention in which an unpredictable accident occurred that caused the patient's death. The jury will be prone to believe, after the fact, that the operation was actually risky and that the doctor who ordered it should have known better. This outcome bias makes it almost impossible to evaluate a decision properly in terms of the beliefs that were reasonable when the decision was made. Hindsight is especially unkind to decision-makers who act as agents for others, physicians, financial advisors, third-base coaches, CEOs, social workers, diplomats, politicians. We are prone to blame decision-makers for good decisions that worked out badly and to give them too little credit for successful moves that appear obvious only after the fact. There is a clear outcome bias. When the outcomes are bad, the clients often blame their agents for not seeing the handwriting on the wall, forgetting that it was written in invisible ink that became legible only afterward. Actions that seemed prudent in foresight can look irresponsibly negligent in hindsight. Based on an actual legal case, students in California were asked whether the city of Duluth, Minnesota, should have shouldered the considerable cost of hiring a full-time bridge monitor to protect against the risk that debris might get caught and block the free flow of water. One group was shown only the evidence available at the time of the city's decision. Twenty-four percent of these people felt that Duluth should take on the expense of hiring a flood monitor. The second group was informed that debris had blocked the river, causing major flood damage. Fifty-six percent of these people said the city should have hired the monitor, although they had been explicitly instructed not to let hindsight distort their judgment. The worse the consequence, the greater the hindsight bias. In the case of a catastrophe such as 9-11, we are especially ready to believe that the officials who failed to anticipate it were negligent or blind. On July 10, 2001, the Central Intelligence Agency obtained information that Al-Qaeda might be planning a major attack against the United States. George Tenet, 
director of the CIA, brought the information not to President George W. Bush, but to National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. When the facts later emerged, Ben Bradley, the legendary executive editor of the Washington Post, declared, It seems to me elementary that if you've got the story that's going to dominate history, you might as well go right to the president. But on July 10th, no one knew or could have known that this tidbit of intelligence would turn out to dominate history. Because adherence to standard operating procedures is difficult to second-guess, decision-makers who expect to have their decisions scrutinized with hindsight are driven to bureaucratic solutions and to an extreme reluctance to take risks. As malpractice litigation became more common, physicians changed their procedures in multiple ways, ordered more tests, referred more cases to specialists, applied conventional treatments even when they were unlikely to help. These actions protected the physicians more than they benefited the patients, creating the potential for conflicts of interest. Increased accountability is a mixed blessing. Although hindsight and the outcome bias generally foster risk aversion, they also bring undeserved rewards to irresponsible risk-seekers, such as a general or an entrepreneur who took a crazy gamble and won. Leaders who have been lucky are never punished for having taken too much risk. Instead, they are believed to have had the flair and foresight to anticipate success and the sensible people who doubted them are seen in hindsight as mediocre, timid, and weak. A few lucky gambles can crown a reckless leader with a halo of prescience and boldness. Recipes for Success The sense-making machinery of System 1 makes us see the world as more tidy, simple, predictable, and coherent than it really is. The illusion that one has understood the past feeds the further illusion that one can predict and control the future. These illusions are comforting. They reduce the anxiety that we would experience if we allowed ourselves to fully acknowledge the uncertainties of existence. We all have a need for the reassuring message that actions have appropriate consequences and that success will reward wisdom and courage. Many business books are tailor-made to satisfy this need. Do leaders and management practices influence the outcomes of firms in the market? Of course they do, and the effects have been confirmed by systematic research that objectively assessed the characteristics of CEOs and their decisions and related them to subsequent outcomes of the firm. In one study, the CEOs were characterized by the strategy of the companies they had led before their current appointment, as well as by management rules and procedures adopted after their appointment. CEOs do influence performance, but the effects are much smaller than a reading of the business press suggests. Researchers measure the strength of relationships by a correlation coefficient, which varies between zero and one. The coefficient was defined earlier in relation to regression to the mean by the extent to which two measures are determined by shared factors.
a very generous estimation of the correlation between the success of the firm and the quality of its CEO might be as high as 0.30, indicating 30% overlap. To appreciate the significance of this number, consider the following question. Suppose you consider many pairs of firms. Two firms in each pair are generally similar, but the CEO of one of them is better than the other. How often will you find that the firm with the stronger CEO is the more successful of the two? In a well-ordered and predictable world, the correlation would be perfect, one, and the stronger CEO would be found to lead the more successful firm in 100% of the pairs. If the relative success of similar firms was determined entirely by factors that the CEO does not control, call them luck if you wish, you would find the more successful firm led by the weaker CEO 50% of the time. A correlation of .30 implies that you would find the stronger CEO leading the stronger firm in about 60% of the pairs, an improvement of a mere 10 percentage points over random guessing. Hardly grist for the hero worship of CEOs we so often witness. If you expected this value to be higher, and most of us do, then you should take that as an indication that you are prone to overestimate the predictability of the world you live in. Make no mistake, improving the odds of success from 1 to 1 to 3 to 2 is a very significant advantage, both at the racetrack and in business. From the perspective of most business writers, however, a CEO who has so little control over performance would not be particularly impressive even if her firm did well. It is difficult to imagine people lining up at airport bookstores to buy a book that enthusiastically describes the practices of business leaders who, on average, do somewhat better than chance. Consumers have a hunger for a clear message about the determinants of success and failure in business and they need stories that offer a sense of understanding, however illusory. In his penetrating book, The Halo Effect, Philip Rosenzweig, a business school professor based in Switzerland, shows how the demand for illusory certainty is met in two popular genres of business writing, histories of the rise, usually, and fall, occasionally, of particular individuals and companies and analyses of differences between successful and less successful firms. He concludes that stories of success and failure consistently exaggerate the impact of leadership style and management practices on firm outcomes, and thus their message is rarely useful. To appreciate what is going on, imagine that business experts, such as other CEOs, are asked to comment on the reputation of the chief executive of a company. They are keenly aware of whether the company has recently been thriving or failing. As we saw earlier in the case of Google, this knowledge generates a halo. The CEO of a successful company is likely to be called flexible, methodical, and decisive. Imagine that a year has passed and things have gone sour. The same executive is now described as confused, rigid, 
and authoritarian. Both descriptions sound right at the time. It seems almost absurd to call a successful leader rigid and confused, or a struggling leader flexible and methodical. Indeed, the halo effect is so powerful that you probably find yourself resisting the idea that the same person and the same behaviors appear methodical when things are going well and rigid when things are going poorly. Because of the halo effect, we get the causal relationship backward. We are prone to believe that the firm fails because its CEO is rigid, when the truth is that the CEO appears to be rigid because the firm is failing. This is how illusions of understanding are born. The halo effect and outcome bias combine to explain the extraordinary appeal of books that seek to draw operational morals from systematic examination of successful businesses. One of the best-known examples of this genre is Jim Collins and Jerry I. Porras's Built to Last. The book contains a thorough analysis of 18 pairs of competing companies in which one was more successful than the other. The data for these comparisons are ratings of various aspects of corporate culture, strategy, and management practices. We believe every CEO, manager, and entrepreneur in the world should read this book, the authors proclaim. You can build a visionary company. The basic message of Built to Last and other similar books is that good managerial practices can be identified and that good practices will be rewarded by good results. Both messages are overstated. The comparison of firms that have been more or less successful is to a significant extent a comparison between firms that have been more or less lucky. Knowing the importance of luck, you should be particularly suspicious when highly consistent patterns emerge from the comparison of successful and less successful firms. In the presence of randomness, regular patterns can only be mirages. Because luck plays a large role, the quality of leadership and management practices cannot be inferred reliably from observations of success. And even if you had perfect foreknowledge that a CEO has brilliant vision and extraordinary competence, you still would be unable to predict how the company will perform with much better accuracy than the flip of a coin. On average, the gap in corporate profitability and stock returns between the outstanding firms and the less successful firms studied and built to last shrank to almost nothing in the period following the study. The average profitability of the companies identified in the famous in search of excellence, drops sharply as well within a short time. A study of Fortune's most admired companies finds that over a 20-year period, the firms with the worst ratings went on to earn much higher stock returns than the most admired firms. You are probably tempted to think of causal explanations for these observations. Perhaps the successful firms became complacent, the less successful firms tried harder. But this is the wrong way to think about what happened. The average gap must shrink, because the original gap was due in good part to luck, 
which contributed both to the success of the top firms and to the lagging performance of the rest. We have already encountered this statistical fact of life, regression to the mean. Stories of how businesses rise and fall strike a chord with readers by offering what the human mind needs, a simple message of triumph and failure that identifies clear causes and ignores the determinative power of luck and the inevitability of regression. These stories induce and maintain an illusion of understanding, imparting lessons of little enduring value to readers who are all too eager to believe them. Speaking of Hindsight The mistake appears obvious, but it is just hindsight. You could not have known in advance. He's learning too much from this success story, which is too tidy. He has fallen for a narrative fallacy. She has no evidence for saying that the firm is badly managed. All she knows is that its stock has gone down. This is an outcome bias, part hindsight and part halo effect. Let's not fall for the outcome bias. This was a stupid decision, even though it worked out well. Chapter 20 The Illusion of Validity System 1 is designed to jump to conclusions from little evidence, and it is not designed to know the size of its jumps. Because of what you see is all there is, only the evidence at hand counts. Because of confidence by coherence, the subjective confidence we have in our opinions reflects the coherence of the story that System 1 and System 2 have constructed. The amount of evidence and its quality do not count for much, because poor evidence can make a very good story. For some of our most important beliefs, we have no evidence at all, except that people we love and trust hold these beliefs. Considering how little we know, the confidence we have in our beliefs is preposterous, and it is also essential. The Illusion of Validity Many decades ago, I spent what seemed like a great deal of time under a scorching sun watching groups of sweaty soldiers as they solved a problem. I was doing my national service in the Israeli army at the time. I had completed an undergraduate degree in psychology and, after a year as an infantry officer, was assigned to the Army's psychology branch, where one of my occasional duties was to help evaluate candidates for officer training. We used methods that had been developed by the British Army in World War II. One test, called the Leaderless Group Challenge, was conducted on an obstacle field. Eight candidates, strangers to each other, with all insignia of rank removed and only numbered tags to identify them, were instructed to lift a long log from the ground and haul it to a wall about six feet high. The entire group had to get to the other side of the wall without the log touching either the ground or the wall and without anyone touching the wall. If any of these things happened, they had to declare it and start again. There was more than one way to solve the problem. 
A common solution was for the team to send several men to the other side by crawling over the pole as it was held at an angle, like a giant fishing rod, by other members of the group. Or else some soldiers would climb onto someone's shoulders and jump across. The last man would then have to jump up at the pole, held up at an angle by the rest of the group, shinny his way along its length, as the others kept him and the pole suspended in the air and leaped safely to the other side. Failure was common at this point, which required them to start all over again. As a colleague and I monitored the exercise, we made note of who took charge, who tried to lead but was rebuffed, how cooperative each soldier was in contributing to the group effort. We saw who seemed to be stubborn, submissive, arrogant, patient, hot-tempered, persistent, or a quitter. We sometimes saw competitive spite when someone whose idea had been rejected by the group no longer worked very hard. And we saw reactions to crisis, who berated a comrade whose mistake had caused the whole group to fail, who stepped forward to lead when the exhausted team had to start over. Under the stress of the event, we felt, each man's true nature revealed itself. Our impression of each candidate's character was as direct and compelling as the color of the sky. After watching the candidates make several attempts, we had to summarize our impressions of soldiers' leadership abilities and determine, with a numerical score, who should be eligible for officer training. We spent some time discussing each case and reviewing our impressions. The task was not difficult because we felt we had already seen each soldier's leadership skills. Some of the men had looked like strong leaders. Others had seemed like wimps or arrogant fools. Others mediocre but not hopeless. Quite a few looked so weak that we ruled them out as candidates for officer rank. When our multiple observations of each candidate converged on a coherent story, we were completely confident in our evaluations and felt that what we had seen pointed directly to the future. The soldier who took over when the group was in trouble and led the team over the wall was a leader at that moment. The obvious best guess about how he would do in training or in combat was that he would be as effective then as he had been at the wall. Any other prediction seemed inconsistent with the evidence before our eyes. Because our impressions of how well each soldier had performed were generally coherent and clear, our formal predictions were just as definite. A single score usually came to mind, and we rarely experienced doubts or formed conflicting impressions. We were quite willing to declare, this one will never make it, that fellow is mediocre, but he should do okay, or he will be a star. We felt no need to question our forecasts, moderate them, or equivocate. If challenged, however, we were prepared to admit, but of course, anything could happen. We were willing to make that admission because, despite our definite impressions about individual candidates, we knew with certainty that our forecasts were largely useless. The evidence that we could not forecast success accurately was overwhelming. Every few months, 
we had a feedback session in which we learned how the cadets were doing at the officer training school and could compare our assessments against the opinions of commanders who had been monitoring them for some time. The story was always the same. Our ability to predict performance at the school was negligible. Our forecasts were better than blind guesses, but not by much. We were downcast for a while after receiving the discouraging news, but this was the Army. Useful or not, there was a routine to be followed and orders to be obeyed. Another batch of candidates arrived the next day. We took them to the obstacle field, we faced them with a wall, they lifted the log, and within a few minutes we saw their true natures revealed as clearly as before. The dismal truth about the quality of our predictions had no effect whatsoever on how we evaluated candidates and very little effect on the confidence we felt in our judgments and predictions about individuals. What happened was remarkable. The global evidence of our previous failure should have shaken our confidence in our judgments of the candidates, but it did not. It should also have caused us to moderate our predictions, but it did not. We knew, as a general fact, that our predictions were little better than random guesses, but we continued to feel and act as if each of our specific predictions was valid. I was reminded of the Mueller-Lyer illusion, in which we know the lines are of equal length, yet still see them as being different. I was so struck by the analogy that I coined a term for our experience, the illusion of validity. I had discovered my first cognitive illusion. Decades later, I can see many of the central themes of my thinking and of this book in that old story. Our expectations for the soldiers' future performance were a clear instance of substitution and of the representativeness heuristic in particular. Having observed one hour of a soldier's behavior in an artificial situation, we felt we knew how well he would face the challenges of officer training and of leadership in combat. Our predictions were completely non-regressive. We had no reservations about predicting failure or outstanding success from weak evidence. This was a clear instance of what you see is all there is. We had compelling impressions of the behavior we observed and no good way to represent our ignorance of the factors that would eventually determine how well the candidate would perform as an officer. Looking back, the most striking part of the story is that our knowledge of the general rule that we could not predict had no effect on our confidence in individual cases. I can see now that our reaction was similar to that of Nisbet and Borgida's students when they were told that most people did not help a stranger suffering a seizure. They certainly believed the statistics they were shown, but the base rates did not influence their judgment of whether an individual they saw on the video would or would not help a stranger. Just as Nisbet and Borgida showed, people are often reluctant to infer the particular from the general. Subjective confidence in a judgment is not a reasoned evaluation of the probability that this judgment is correct. 
confidence is a feeling, which reflects the coherence of the information and the cognitive ease of processing it. It is wise to take admissions of uncertainty seriously, but declarations of high confidence mainly tell you that an individual has constructed a coherent story in his mind, not necessarily that the story is true. The Illusion of Stock-Picking Skill In 1984, Amos and I, and our friend Richard Thaler, visited a Wall Street firm. Our host, a senior investment manager, had invited us to discuss the role of judgment biases in investing. I knew so little about finance that I did not even know what to ask him, but I remember one exchange. When you sell a stock, I asked, who buys it? He answered with a wave and a vague direction of the window, indicating that he expected the buyer to be someone else very much like him. That was odd. What made one person buy and the other sell? What did the sellers think they knew that the buyers did not? Since then, my questions about the stock market have hardened into a larger puzzle. A major industry appears to be built largely on an illusion of skill. Billions of shares are traded every day, with many people buying each stock and others selling it to them. It is not unusual for more than 100 million shares of a single stock to change hands in one day. Most of the buyers and sellers know that they have the same information. They exchange the stocks primarily because they have different opinions. The buyers think the price is too low and likely to rise, while the sellers think the price is high and likely to drop. The puzzle is why buyers and sellers alike think that the current price is wrong. What makes them believe they know more about what the price should be than the market does? For most of them, that belief is an illusion. In its broad outlines, the standard theory of how the stock market works is accepted by all the participants in the industry. Everybody in the investment business has read Burton Malkiel's wonderful book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Malkiel's central idea is that a stock's price incorporates all the available knowledge about the value of the company and the best predictions about the future of the stock. If some people believe that the price of a stock will be higher tomorrow, they will buy more of it today. This, in turn, will cause its price to rise. If all assets in a market are correctly priced, no one can expect either to gain or to lose by trading. Perfect prices leave no scope for cleverness, but they also protect fools from their own folly. We now know, however, that the theory is not quite right. Many individual investors lose consistently by trading, an achievement that a dart-throwing chimp could not match. The first demonstration of this startling conclusion was collected by Terry O'Dean, a finance professor at UC Berkeley, who was once my student. Odin began by studying the trading records of 10,000 brokerage accounts of individual investors spanning a seven-year period. He was able to analyze every transaction the investors executed through that firm, nearly 163,000 trades.
This rich set of data allowed Odin to identify all instances in which an investor sold some of his holdings in one stock and soon afterward bought another stock. By these actions, the investor revealed that he, most of the investors were men, had a definite idea about the future of the two stocks. He expected the stock that he chose to buy to do better than the stock he chose to sell. To determine whether those ideas were well-founded, Odin compared the returns of the stock the investor had sold and the stock he had bought in its place over the course of one year after the transaction. The results were unequivocally bad. On average, the shares that individual traders sold did better than those they bought by a very substantial margin, 3.2 percentage points per year, above and beyond the significant costs of executing the two trades. It is important to remember that this is a statement about averages. Some individuals did much better, others did much worse. However, it is clear that for the large majority of individual investors, taking a shower and doing nothing would have been a better policy than implementing the ideas that came to their minds. Later research by Odin and his colleague, Brad Barber, supported this conclusion. In a paper titled, Trading is Hazardous to Your Wealth, they showed that, on average, the most active traders had the poorest results, while the investors who traded the least earned the highest returns. In another paper, titled, Boys Will Be Boys, they showed that men acted on their useless ideas significantly more often than women, and that, as a result, women achieved better investment results than men. Of course, there is always someone on the other side of each transaction. In general, these are financial institutions and professional investors who are ready to take advantage of the mistakes that individual traders make in choosing a stock to sell and another stock to buy. Further research by Barber and Odin has shed light on these mistakes. Individual investors like to lock in their gains by selling winners, stocks that have appreciated since they were purchased, and they hang on to their losers. Unfortunately for them, Recent winners tend to do better than recent losers in the short run, so individuals sell the wrong stocks. They also buy the wrong stocks. Individual investors predictably flock to companies that draw their attention because they are in the news. Professional investors are more selective in responding to news. These findings provide some justification for the label of smart money that finance professionals apply to themselves. Although professionals are able to extract a considerable amount of wealth from amateurs, few stock pickers, if any, have the skill needed to beat the market consistently year after year. Professional investors, including fund managers, fail a basic test of skill, persistent achievement. The diagnostic for the existence of any skill is the consistency of individual differences in achievement. The logic is simple. If individual differences in any one year are due entirely to luck, the ranking of investors and funds will vary erratically and the year-to-year -year correlation will be zero. Where there is skill, however, the rankings will be more stable.
The persistence of individual differences is the measure by which we confirm the existence of skill among golfers, car salespeople, orthodontists, or speedy toll collectors on the turnpike. Mutual funds are run by highly experienced and hardworking professionals who buy and sell stocks to achieve the best possible results for their clients. Nevertheless, the evidence from more than 50 years of research is conclusive. For a large majority of fund managers, the selection of stocks is more like rolling dice than like playing poker. Typically, at least two out of every three mutual funds underperform the overall market in any given year. More important, the year-to-year -year correlation between the outcomes of mutual funds is very small, barely higher than zero. The successful funds in any given year are mostly lucky. They have a good roll of the dice. There is general agreement among researchers that nearly all stock pickers, whether they know it or not, and few of them do, are playing a game of chance. The subjective experience of traders is that they are making sensible, educated guesses in a situation of great uncertainty. In highly efficient markets, however, educated guesses are no more accurate than blind guesses. Some years ago, I had an unusual opportunity to examine the illusion of financial skill up close. I had been invited to speak to a group of investment advisors in a firm that provided financial advice and other services to very wealthy clients. I asked for some data to prepare my presentation and was granted a small treasure, a spreadsheet summarizing the investment outcomes of some 25 anonymous wealth advisors for each of eight consecutive years. Each advisor's score for each year was his most of them were men, main determinant of his year-end bonus. It was a simple matter to rank the advisors by their performance in each year and to determine whether there were persistent differences in skill among them and whether the same advisors consistently achieved better returns for their clients year after year. To answer the question, I computed the correlation coefficients between the rankings in each pair of years, year one with year two, year one with year three, and so on up through year seven with year eight. That yielded 28 correlation coefficients, one for each pair of years. I knew the theory and was prepared to find weak evidence of persistence of skill. Still, I was surprised to find that the average of the 28 correlations was .01. In other words, zero. The consistent correlations that would indicate differences in skill were not to be found. The results resembled what you would expect from a dice-throwing contest, not a game of skill. No one in the firm seemed to be aware of the nature of the game that its stock pickers were playing. The advisors themselves felt they were competent professionals doing a serious job, and their superiors agreed. On the evening before the seminar, Richard Thaler and I had dinner with some of the top executives of the firm, the people who decide on the size of bonuses. We asked them to guess the year-to-year -year correlation in the rankings of individual advisors. 
They thought they knew what was coming, and smiled as they said, Not very high, or Performance certainly fluctuates. It quickly became clear, however, that no one expected the average correlation to be zero. Our message to the executives was that, at least when it came to building portfolios, the firm was rewarding luck as if it were skill. This should have been shocking news to them, but it was not. There was no sign that they disbelieved us. How could they? After all, we had analyzed their own results, and they were sophisticated enough to see the implications, which we politely refrained from spelling out. We all went on calmly with our dinner, and I have no doubt that both our findings and their implications were quickly swept under the rug and that life in the firm went on just as before. The illusion of skill is not only an individual aberration. It is deeply ingrained in the culture of the industry. Facts that challenge such basic assumptions and thereby threaten people's livelihood and self-esteem are simply not absorbed. The mind does not digest them. This is particularly true of statistical studies of performance, which provide base-rate information that people generally ignore when it clashes with their personal impressions from experience. The next morning, we reported the findings to the advisors, and their response was equally bland. Their own experience of exercising careful judgment on complex problems was far more compelling to them than an obscure statistical fact. When we were done, one of the executives I had dined with the previous evening drove me to the airport. He told me, with a trace of defensiveness, I have done very well for the firm, and no one can take that away from me. I smiled and said nothing. But I thought, well, I took it away from you this morning. If your success was due mostly to chance, how much credit are you entitled to take for it? What supports the illusions of skill and validity? Cognitive illusions can be more stubborn than visual illusions. What you learned about the Muller-Lyer illusion did not change the way you see the lines, but it changed your behavior. You now know that you cannot trust your impression of the length of lines that have fins appended to them, and you also know that in the standard Muller-Lyer display you cannot trust what you see. When asked about the length of the lines, you will report your informed belief, not the illusion that you continue to see. In contrast, when my colleagues and I in the Army learned that our leadership assessment tests had low validity, we accepted that fact intellectually, but it had no impact on either our feelings or our subsequent actions. The response we encountered in the financial firm was even more extreme. I am convinced that the message that Thaler and I delivered to both the executives and the portfolio managers was instantly put away in a dark corner of memory where it would cause no damage. Why do investors, both amateur and professional, stubbornly believe that they can do better than the market, contrary to an economic theory that most of them accept, and contrary to what they could learn from a dispassionate evaluation of their personal experience. 
Many of the themes of previous chapters come up again in the explanation of the prevalence and persistence of an illusion of skill in the financial world. The most potent psychological cause of the illusion is certainly that the people who pick stocks are exercising high-level skills. They consult economic data and forecasts. They examine income statements and balance sheets. They evaluate the quality of top management, and they assess the competition. All this is serious work that requires extensive training, and the people who do it have the immediate and valid experience of using these skills. Unfortunately, skill in evaluating the business prospects of a firm is not sufficient for successful stock trading, where the key question is whether the information about the firm is already incorporated in the price of its stock. Traders apparently lack the skill to answer this crucial question, but they appear to be ignorant of their ignorance. As I had discovered from watching cadets on the obstacle field, subjective confidence of traders is a feeling, not a judgment. Our understanding of cognitive ease and associative coherence locates subjective confidence firmly in System 1. Finally, the illusions of validity and skill are supported by a powerful professional culture. We know that people can maintain an unshakable faith in any proposition, however absurd, when they are sustained by a community of like-minded believers. Given the professional culture of the financial community, it is not surprising that large numbers of individuals in that world believe themselves to be among the chosen few who can do what they believe others cannot. The Illusions of Pundits The idea that the future is unpredictable is undermined every day by the ease with which the past is explained. As Nassim Taleb pointed out in The Black Swan, our tendency to construct and believe coherent narratives of the past makes it difficult for us to accept the limits of our forecasting ability. Everything makes sense in hindsight, a fact that financial pundits exploit every evening as they offer convincing accounts of the day's events and we cannot suppress the powerful intuition that what makes sense in hindsight today was predictable yesterday. The illusion that we understand the past fosters overconfidence in our ability to predict the future. The often used image of the march of history implies order and direction. Marches, unlike strolls or walks, are not random. We think that we should be able to explain the past by focusing on either large social movements and cultural and technological developments or the intentions and abilities of a few great men. The idea that large historical events are determined by luck is profoundly shocking, although it is demonstrably true. It is hard to think of the history of the 20th century, including its large social movements, without bringing in the role of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong. But there was a moment in time, just before an egg was fertilized, when there was a 50-50 chance that the embryo that became Hitler could have been a female. Compounding the three events, 
There was a probability of one-eighth of a twentieth century without any of the three great villains, and it is impossible to argue that history would have been roughly the same in their absence. The fertilization of these three eggs had momentous consequences, and it makes a joke of the idea that long-term developments are predictable. Yet the illusion of valid prediction remains intact, a fact that is exploited by people whose business is prediction, not only financial experts, but pundits in business and politics, too. Television and radio stations and newspapers have their panels of experts whose job it is to comment on the recent past and foretell the future. Viewers and readers have the impression that they are receiving information that is somehow privileged, or at least extremely insightful, and there is no doubt that the pundits and their promoters genuinely believe they are offering such information. Philip Tetlock, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, explained these so-called expert predictions in a landmark 20-year study which he published in his 2005 book, Expert Political Judgment. How good is it? How can we know? Tetlock has set the terms for any future discussion of this topic. Tetlock interviewed 284 people who made their living commenting or offering advice on political and economic trends. He asked them to assess the probabilities that certain events would occur in the not-too-distant future, both in areas of the world in which they specialized and in regions about which they had less knowledge. Would Gorbachev be ousted in a coup? Would the United States go to war in the Persian Gulf? Which country would become the next big emerging market? In all, Tetlock gathered more than 80,000 predictions. He also asked the experts how they reached their conclusions, how they reacted when proved wrong, and how they evaluated evidence that did not support their positions. Respondents were asked to rate the probabilities of three alternative outcomes in every case. The persistence of the status quo, more of something such as political freedom or economic growth or less of that thing. The results were devastating. The experts performed worse than they would have if they had simply assigned equal probabilities to each of the three potential outcomes. In other words, people who spend their time and earn their living studying a particular topic produce poorer predictions than dart-throwing monkeys who would have distributed their choices evenly over the options. Even in the region they knew best, Experts were not significantly better than non-specialists. Those who know more forecast very slightly better than those who know less. But those with the most knowledge are often less reliable. The reason is that the person who acquires more knowledge develops an enhanced illusion of her skill and becomes unrealistically overconfident. We reach the point of diminishing marginal predictive returns for knowledge disconcertingly quickly, Tetlock writes. In this age of academic hyperspecialization, there is no reason for supposing that contributors to top journals, distinguished political scientists, area study specialists, economists, and so on, 
are any better than journalists or attentive readers of the New York Times in reading emerging situations. The more famous the forecaster, Tetlock discovered, the more flamboyant the forecasts. Experts in demand, he writes, were more overconfident than their colleagues who eked out existences far from the limelight. Tetlock also found that experts resisted admitting that they had been wrong, and when they were compelled to admit error, they had a large collection of excuses. They had been wrong only in their timing. An unforeseeable event had intervened, or they had been wrong, but for the right reasons. Experts are just human in the end. They are dazzled by their own brilliance and hate to be wrong. Experts are led astray not by what they believe, but by how they think, says Tetlock. He uses the terminology from Isaiah Berlin's essay on Tolstoy, The Hedgehog and the Fox. Hedgehogs know one big thing and have a theory about the world. They account for particular events within a coherent framework, bristle with impatience toward those who don't see things their way, and are confident in their forecasts. They are also especially reluctant to admit error. For hedgehogs, a failed prediction is, almost always, off only on timing, or very nearly right. They're opinionated and clear which is exactly what television producers love to see on programs. Two hedgehogs on different sides of an issue, each attacking the idiotic ideas of the adversary, make for a good show. Foxes, by contrast, are complex thinkers. They don't believe that one big thing drives the march of history. For example, they are unlikely to accept the view that Ronald Reagan single-handedly ended the Cold War by standing tall against the Soviet Union. Instead, the foxes recognize that reality emerges from the interactions of many different agents and forces, including blind luck, often producing large and unpredictable outcomes. It was the foxes who scored best in Tetlock's study, although their performance was still very poor. They are less likely than hedgehogs to be invited to participate in television debates. It is not the expert's fault. The world is difficult. The main point of this chapter is not that people who attempt to predict the future make many errors. That goes without saying. The first lesson is that errors of prediction are inevitable because the world is unpredictable. The second is that high subjective confidence is not to be trusted as an indicator of accuracy. Low confidence could be more informative. Short-term trends can be forecast, and behavior and achievements can be predicted with fair accuracy from previous behaviors and achievements. But we should not expect performance in officer training and in combat to be predictable from behavior on an obstacle field. Behavior both on the test and in the real world is determined by many factors that are specific to the particular situation. Remove one highly assertive member from a group of eight candidates and everyone else's personalities will appear to change. 
Let a sniper's bullet move by a few centimeters, and the performance of an officer will be transformed. I do not deny the validity of all tests. If a test predicts an important outcome with a validity of .20 or .30, the test should be used. But you should not expect more. You should expect little or nothing from Wall Street stock pickers who hope to be more accurate than the market in predicting the future of prices. And you should not expect much from pundits making long-term forecasts, although they may have valuable insights into the near future. The line that separates the possibly predictable future from the unpredictable distant future is yet to be drawn. Speaking of illusory skill He knows that the record indicates that the development of this illness is mostly unpredictable. How can he be so confident in this case? Sounds like an illusion of validity. She has a coherent story that explains all she knows, and the coherence makes her feel good. What makes him believe that he is smarter than the market? Is this an illusion of skill? She is a hedgehog. She has a theory that explains everything, and it gives her the illusion that she understands the world. The question is not whether these experts are well-trained. It is whether their world is predictable. Chapter 21 Intuitions versus Formulas Paul Meal was a strange and wonderful character, and one of the most versatile psychologists of the 20th century. Among the departments in which he had faculty appointments at the University of Minnesota were psychology, law, psychiatry, neurology, and philosophy. He also wrote on religion, political science, and learning in rats. A statistically sophisticated researcher and a fierce critic of empty claims in clinical psychology, Meal was also a practicing psychoanalyst. He wrote thoughtful essays on the philosophical foundations of psychological research that I almost memorized while I was a graduate student. I never met Meal, but he was one of my heroes from the time I read his Clinical versus Statistical Prediction, a theoretical analysis and a review of the evidence. In the slim volume that he later called My Disturbing Little Book, Meal reviewed the results of 20 studies that had analyzed whether clinical predictions based on the subjective impressions of trained professionals were more accurate than statistical predictions made by combining a few scores or ratings according to a rule. In a typical study, trained counselors predicted the grades of freshmen at the end of the school year. The counselors interviewed each student for 45 minutes. They also had access to high school grades, several aptitude tests, and a four-page personal statement. The statistical algorithm used only a fraction of this information, high school grades, and one aptitude test. Nevertheless, the formula was more accurate than 11 of the 14 counselors. Meal reported generally similar results across a variety of other forecast outcomes, 
including violations of parole, success in pilot training, and criminal recidivism. Not surprisingly, Meal's book provoked shock and disbelief among clinical psychologists, and the controversy it started has engendered a stream of research that is still flowing today, more than 50 years after its publication. The number of studies reporting comparisons of clinical and statistical predictions has increased to roughly 200, but the score in the contest between algorithms and humans has not changed. About 60% of the studies have shown significantly better accuracy for the algorithms. The other comparisons scored a draw in accuracy, but a tie is tantamount to a win for the statistical rules, which are normally much less expensive to use than expert judgment. No exception has been convincingly documented. The range of predicted outcomes has expanded to cover medical variables such as the longevity of cancer patients, the length of hospital stays, the diagnosis of cardiac disease, and the susceptibility of babies to sudden infant death syndrome, economic measures such as the prospects of success for new businesses, the evaluation of credit risks by banks, and the future career satisfaction of workers, questions of interest to government agencies, including assessments of the suitability of foster parents, the odds of recidivism among juvenile offenders, and the likelihood of other forms of violent behavior, and miscellaneous outcomes such as the evaluation of scientific presentations, the winners of football games, and the future prices of Bordeaux wine. Each of these domains entails a significant degree of uncertainty and unpredictability. We describe them as low-validity environments. In every case, the accuracy of experts was matched or exceeded by a simple algorithm. As Meal pointed out with justified pride 30 years after publication of his book, there is no controversy in social science which shows such a large body of qualitatively diverse studies coming out so uniformly in the same direction as this one. The Princeton economist and wine lover, Orly Ashenfelter, has offered a compelling demonstration of the power of simple statistics to outdo world-renowned experts. Ashenfelter wanted to predict the future value of fine Bordeaux wines from information available in the year they are made. The question is important because fine wines take years to reach their peak quality, and the prices of mature wines from the same vineyard vary dramatically across different vintages. Bottles filled only 12 months apart can differ in value by a factor of 10 or more. An ability to forecast future prices is of substantial value because investors buy wine, like art, in the anticipation that its value will appreciate. It is generally agreed that the effect of vintage can be due only to variations in the weather during the grape growing season. The best wines are produced when the summer is warm and dry, which makes the Bordeaux wine industry a likely beneficiary of global warming. The industry is also helped by wet springs, which increase quantity without much effect on quality. 
Ashenfelter converted that conventional knowledge into a statistical formula that predicts the price of a wine for a particular property and at a particular age by three features of the weather, the average temperature over the summer growing season, the amount of rain at harvest time, and the total rainfall during the previous winter. His formula provides accurate price forecasts years and even decades into the future. Indeed, his formula forecasts future prices much more accurately than the current prices of young wines do. This new example of a meal pattern challenges the abilities of the experts whose opinions helped shape the early price. It also challenges economic theory, according to which prices should reflect all the available information, including the weather. Ashenfelter's formula is extremely accurate. The correlation between his predictions and actual prices is above 0.90. Why are experts inferior to algorithms? One reason, which Meehl suspected, is that experts try to be clever, think outside the box, and consider complex combinations of features in making their predictions. Complexity may work in the odd case, but more often than not, it reduces validity. Simple combinations of features are better. Several studies have shown that human decision-makers are inferior to a prediction formula even when they are given the score suggested by the formula. They feel that they can overrule the formula because they have additional information about the case, but they are wrong more often than not. According to Meehl, there are few circumstances under which it is a good idea to substitute judgment for a formula. In a famous thought experiment, he described a formula that predicts whether a particular person will go to the movies tonight and noted that it is proper to disregard the formula if information is received that the individual broke a leg today. The name, broken leg rule, has stuck. The point, of course, is that broken legs are very rare, as well as decisive. Another reason for the inferiority of expert judgment is that humans are incorrigibly inconsistent in making summary judgments of complex information. When asked to evaluate the same information twice, they frequently give different answers. The extent of the inconsistency is often a matter of real concern. Experienced radiologists who evaluate chest x-rays as normal or abnormal contradict themselves 20% of the time when they see the same picture on separate occasions. A study of 101 independent auditors who were asked to evaluate the reliability of internal corporate audits revealed a similar degree of inconsistency. A review of 41 separate studies of the reliability of judgments made by auditors, pathologists, psychologists, organizational managers, and other professionals suggests that this level of inconsistency is typical, even when a case is re-evaluated within a few minutes. Unreliable judgments cannot be valid predictors of anything. The widespread inconsistency is probably due to the extreme context dependency of System 1.
We know from studies of priming that unnoticed stimuli in our environment have a substantial influence on our thoughts and actions. These influences fluctuate from moment to moment. The brief pleasure of a cool breeze on a hot day may make you slightly more positive and optimistic about whatever you are evaluating at the time. The prospects of a convict being granted parole may change significantly during the time that elapses between successive food breaks in the parole judge's schedule. Because you have little direct knowledge of what goes on in your mind, you will never know that you might have made a different judgment or reached a different decision under very slightly different circumstances. Formulas do not suffer from such problems. Given the same input, they always return the same answer. When predictability is poor, which it is in most of the studies reviewed by Meal and his followers, inconsistency is destructive of any predictive validity. The research suggests a surprising conclusion. To maximize predictive accuracy, final decisions should be left to formulas especially in low-validity environments. In admission decisions for medical schools, for example, the final determination is often made by the faculty members who interview the candidate. The evidence is fragmentary, but there are solid grounds for a conjecture. Conducting an interview is likely to diminish the accuracy of a selection procedure if the interviewers also make the final admission decisions. Because interviewers are overconfident in their intuitions, they will assign too much weight to their personal impressions and too little weight to other sources of information, lowering validity. Similarly, the experts who evaluate the quality of immature wine to predict its future have a source of information that almost certainly makes things worse rather than better. They can taste the wine. In addition, of course, even if they have a good understanding of the effects of the weather on wine quality, they will not be able to maintain the consistency of a formula. The most important development in the field since Meal's original work is Robin Dawes's famous article, The Robust Beauty of Improper Linear Models in Decision-Making. The dominant statistical practice in the social sciences is to assign weights to the different predictors by following an algorithm called multiple regression that is now built into conventional software. The logic of multiple regression is unassailable. It finds the optimal formula for putting together a weighted combination of the predictors. However, Dawes observed that the complex statistical algorithm adds little or no value. One can do just as well by selecting a set of scores that have some validity for predicting the outcome and adjusting the values to make them comparable by using standard scores or ranks. A formula that combines these predictors with equal weights is likely to be just as accurate in predicting new cases as the multiple regression formula that was optimal in the original sample. More recent research went further. Formulas that assign equal weights to all the predictors are often superior, 
because they are not affected by accidents of sampling. The surprising success of equal weighting schemes has an important practical implication. It is possible to develop useful algorithms without any prior statistical research. Simple, equally weighted formulas based on existing statistics or on common sense are often very good predictors of significant outcomes. In a memorable example, Dawes showed that marital stability is well predicted by a formula. Frequency of lovemaking minus frequency of quarrels. You don't want your result to be a negative number. The important conclusion from this research is that an algorithm that is constructed on the back of an envelope is often good enough to compete with an optimally weighted formula and certainly good enough to outdo expert judgment. This logic can be applied in many domains, ranging from the selection of stocks by portfolio managers to the choices of medical treatments by doctors or patients. A classical application of this approach is a simple algorithm that has saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of infants. Obstetricians had always known that an infant who is not breathing normally within a few minutes of birth is at high risk of brain damage or death. Until the anesthesiologist, Virginia Apgar, intervened in 1953, physicians and midwives used their clinical judgment to determine whether a baby was in distress. Different practitioners focused on different cues. Some watched for breathing problems, while others monitored how soon the baby cried. Without a standardized procedure, danger signs were often missed, and many newborn infants died. One day over breakfast, a medical resident asked how Dr. Apgar would make a systematic assessment of a newborn. That's easy, she replied. You would do it like this. Apgar jotted down five variables. Heart rate, respiration, reflex, muscle tone, and color. And three scores, zero, one, or two, depending on the robustness of each sign. Realizing that she might have made a breakthrough that any delivery room could implement, Apgar began rating infants by this rule one minute after they were born. A baby with a total score of eight or above was likely to be pink, squirming, crying, grimacing, without a pulse of 100 or more, in good shape. A baby with a score of four or below was probably bluish, flaccid, passive, with a slow or weak pulse, in need of immediate intervention. Applying Apgar's score the staff in delivery rooms finally had consistent standards for determining which babies were in trouble, and the formula is credited for an important contribution to reducing infant mortality. The APGAR test is still used every day in every delivery room. Atul Gawande's recent A Checklist Manifesto provides many other examples of the virtues of checklists and simple rules. The Hostility to Algorithms From the very outset, clinical psychologists responded to Meal's ideas with hostility and disbelief. Clearly, 
they were in the grip of an illusion of skill in terms of their ability to make long-term predictions. On reflection, it is easy to see how the illusion came about and easy to sympathize with the clinician's rejection of Neal's research. The statistical evidence of clinical inferiority contradicts clinicians' everyday experience of the quality of their judgments. Psychologists who work with patients have many hunches during each therapy session, anticipating how the patient will respond to an intervention, guessing what will happen next. Many of these hunches are confirmed, illustrating the reality of clinical skill. The problem is that the correct judgments involve short-term predictions in the context of the therapeutic interview, a skill in which therapists may have years of practice. The tasks at which they fail, typically, require long-term predictions about the patient's future. These are much more difficult. Even the best formulas do only modestly well, and they are also tasks that the clinicians have never had the opportunity to learn properly. They would have to wait years for feedback instead of receiving the instantaneous feedback of the clinical session. However, the line between what clinicians can do well and what they cannot do at all well is not obvious, and certainly not obvious to them. They know they are skilled, but they don't necessarily know the boundaries of their skill. Not surprisingly, then, the idea that a mechanical combination of a few variables could outperform the subtle complexity of human judgment strikes experienced clinicians as obviously wrong. The debate about the virtues of clinical and statistical prediction has always had a moral dimension. The statistical method, Neil wrote, was criticized by experienced clinicians as mechanical, atomistic, additive, cut-and-dried, artificial, unreal, arbitrary, incomplete, dead, pedantic, fractionated, trivial, forced, static, superficial, rigid, sterile, academic, pseudo-scientific, and blind. The clinical method, on the other hand, was lauded by its proponents as dynamic, global, meaningful, holistic, subtle, sympathetic, configural, patterned, organized, rich, deep, genuine, sensitive, sophisticated, real, living, concrete, natural, true to life, and understanding. This is an attitude we can all recognize. When a human competes with a machine, whether it is John Henry a hammering on the mountain, or the chess genius Gary Kasparov facing off against the computer Deep Blue, our sympathies lie with our fellow human. The aversion to algorithms making decisions that affect humans is rooted in the strong preference that many people have for the natural over the synthetic or artificial. Asked whether they would rather eat an organic or a commercially grown apple, most people prefer the all-natural one. Even after being informed that the two apples taste the same, have identical nutritional value, and are equally healthful, a majority still prefer the organic fruit. Even the producers of beer have found that they can increase sales by putting all-natural or no preservatives on the label. 
The deep resistance to the demystification of expertise is illustrated by the reaction of the European wine community to Ashenfelter's formula for predicting the price of Bordeaux wines. Ashenfelter's formula answered a prayer. One might thus have expected that wine lovers everywhere would be grateful to him for demonstrably improving their ability to identify the wines that later would be good. Not so. The response in French wine circles, wrote the New York Times, ranged somewhere between violent and hysterical. Ashenfelter reports that one enophile called his findings ludicrous and absurd. Another scoffed, it is like judging movies without actually seeing them. The prejudice against algorithms is magnified when the decisions are consequential. Meal remarked, I do not quite know how to alleviate the horror some clinicians seem to experience when they envisage a treatable case being denied treatment because a blind mechanical equation misclassifies him. In contrast, Meal and other proponents of algorithms have argued strongly that it is unethical to rely on intuitive judgments for important decisions if an algorithm is available that will make fewer mistakes. Their rational argument is compelling, but it runs against a stubborn psychological reality. For most people, the cause of a mistake matters. The story of a child's dying because an algorithm made a mistake is more poignant than the story of the same tragedy occurring as a result of human error, and the difference in emotional intensity is readily translated into a moral preference. Fortunately, the hostility to algorithms will probably soften as their role in everyday life continues to expand. Looking for books or music we might enjoy, we appreciate recommendations generated by software. We take it for granted that decisions about credit limits are made without the direct intervention of any human judgment. We are increasingly exposed to guidelines that have the form of simple algorithms, such as the ratio of good and bad cholesterol levels we should strive to attain. The public is now well aware that formulas may do better than humans in some critical decisions in the world of sports how much a professional team should pay for particular rookie players, or when to punt on the fourth down. The expanding list of tasks that are assigned to algorithms should eventually reduce the discomfort that most people feel when they first encounter the pattern of results that Meal described in his disturbing little book. Learning from Meal in 1955, as a 21-year-old lieutenant in the Israeli Defense Forces, I was assigned to set up an interview system for the entire army. If you wonder why such a responsibility would be forced upon someone so young, bear in mind that the state of Israel itself was only seven years old at the time. All its institutions were under construction, and someone had to build them. Odd as it sounds today, my bachelor's degree in psychology probably qualified me as the best-trained psychologist in the Army. My direct supervisor, a brilliant researcher, had a degree in chemistry. 
An interview routine was already in place when I was given my mission. Every soldier drafted into the army completed a battery of psychometric tests, and each man considered for combat duty was interviewed for an assessment of personality. The goal was to assign the recruit a score of general fitness for combat and to find the best match of his personality among various branches, infantry, artillery, armor, and so on. The interviewers were themselves young draftees, selected for this assignment by virtue of their high intelligence and interest in dealing with people. Most were women, who were at the time exempt from combat duty. Trained for a few weeks in how to conduct a 15- to 20-minute interview, they were encouraged to cover a range of topics and to form a general impression of how well the recruit would do in the Army. Unfortunately, follow-up evaluations had already indicated that this interview procedure was almost useless for predicting the future success of recruits. I was instructed to design an interview that would be more useful but would not take more time. I was also told to try out the new interview and to evaluate its accuracy. From the perspective of a serious professional, I was no more qualified for the task than I was to build a bridge across the Amazon. Fortunately, I had read Paul Meal's little book, which had appeared just a year earlier. I was convinced by his argument that simple statistical rules are superior to intuitive clinical judgments. I concluded that the then-current interview had failed at least in part because it allowed the interviewers to do what they found most interesting, which was to learn about the dynamics of the interviewee's mental life. Instead, we should use the limited time at our disposal to obtain as much specific information as possible about the interviewee's life in his normal environment. Another lesson I learned from Meal was that we should abandon the procedure in which the interviewer's global evaluations of the recruit determined the final decision. Meal's book suggested that such evaluations should not be trusted and that statistical summaries of separately evaluated attributes would achieve higher validity. I decided on a procedure in which the interviewers would evaluate several relevant personality traits and score each separately. The final score of fitness for combat duty would be computed according to a standard formula with no further input from the interviewers. I made up a list of six characteristics that appeared relevant to performance in a combat unit, including responsibility, sociability, and masculine pride. I then composed, for each trait, a series of factual questions about the individual's life before his enlistment, including the number of different jobs he had held, how regular and punctual he had been in his work or studies, the frequency of his interaction with friends, and his interest and participation in sports, among others. The idea was to evaluate as objectively as possible how well the recruit had done on each dimension. By focusing on standardized, factual questions, I hoped to combat the halo effect, where favorable first impressions influence later judgments. As a further precaution against halos, 
I instructed the interviewers to go through the six traits in a fixed sequence, rating each trait on a five-point scale before going on to the next. And that was that. I informed the interviewers that they need not concern themselves with the recruits' future adjustment to the military. Their only task was to elicit relevant facts about his past and to use that information to score each personality dimension. Your function is to provide reliable measurements, I told them. Leave the predictive validity to me, by which I meant the formula that I was going to devise to combine their specific ratings. The interviewers came close to mutiny. These bright young people were displeased to be ordered, by someone hardly older than themselves, to switch off their intuition and focus entirely on boring factual questions. One of them complained, You are turning us into robots. So I compromised. Carry out the interview exactly as I instructed, I told them, and when you are done, have your wish. Close your eyes, try to imagine the recruit as a soldier, and assign him a score on a scale of one to five. Several hundred interviews were conducted by this new method, and a few months later we collected evaluations of the soldiers' performance from the commanding officers of the units to which they had been assigned. The results made us happy. As Meal's book had suggested, the new interview procedure was a substantial improvement over the old one. The sum of our six ratings predicted soldiers' performance much more accurately than the global evaluations of the previous interviewing method, although far from perfectly. We had progressed from completely useless to moderately useful. The big surprise to me was that the intuitive judgment that the interviewers summoned up in the close-your-eyes exercise also did very well, indeed, just as well as the sum of the six specific ratings. I learned from this finding a lesson that I have never forgotten. Intuition adds value even in the justly derided selection interview, but only after a disciplined collection of objective information and disciplined scoring of separate traits. I set a formula that gave the close-your-eyes evaluation the same weight as the sum of the six trait ratings. A more general lesson that I learned from this episode was do not simply trust intuitive judgment, your own or that of others, but do not dismiss it either. Some forty-five years later, after I won a Nobel Prize in economics, I was for a short time a minor celebrity in Israel. On one of my visits, someone had the idea of escorting me around my old army base, which still housed the unit that interviews new recruits. I was introduced to the commanding officer of the psychological unit, and she described their current interviewing practices, which had not changed much from the system I had designed. There was, it turned out, a considerable amount of research indicating that the interviews still worked well. As she came to the end of her description of how the interviews are conducted, the officer added, and then we tell them, close your eyes. Do it yourself. The message of this chapter is readily applicable to tasks other than making manpower decisions for an army. 
Implementing interview procedures in the spirit of Neil and Dawes requires relatively little effort but substantial discipline. Suppose that you need to hire a sales representative for your firm. If you are serious about hiring the best possible person for the job, this is what you should do. First, select a few traits that are prerequisites for success in this position. Technical proficiency, engaging personality, reliability, and so on. Don't overdo it. Six dimensions is a good number. The traits you choose should be as independent as possible from each other, and you should feel that you can assess them reliably by asking a few factual questions. Next, make a list of those questions for each trait and think about how you will score it, say on a 1 to 5 scale. You should have an idea of what you will call very weak or very strong. These preparations should take you half an hour or so, a small investment that can make a significant difference in the quality of the people you hire. To avoid halo effects, you must collect the information on one trait at a time, scoring each before you move on to the next one. Do not skip around. To evaluate each candidate, add up the six scores. Because you are in charge of the final decision, you should not do a close your eyes. Firmly resolve that you will hire the candidate whose final score is the highest, even if there is another one whom you like better. Try to resist your wish to invent broken legs or change the ranking. A vast amount of research offers a promise. You are much more likely to find the best candidate if you use this procedure than if you do what people normally do in such situations which is go into the interview unprepared and to make choices by an overall intuitive judgment such as, I looked into his eyes and I liked what I saw. Speaking of judgments versus formulas. Whenever we can replace human judgment by a formula, we should at least consider it. He thinks his judgments are complex and subtle but a simple combination of scores could probably do better. Let's decide in advance what weight to give the data we have on the candidate's past performance. Otherwise, we will give too much weight to our impression from the interviews.